as we work through Christianity and liberalism, we work through just glancing at the table of contents, uh, Machen's introduction to the whole reality of what's going on 100 years ago in the church uh, in the United States, particularly in the Presbyterian church, and this is written broadly to the whole church. And he wants to show a great division between what is called liberalism or modernism in the church and the, the, the tenets they hold, the doctrines they teach, the practices they have in the church that are different from historic Christianity. He wants to show these two things are quite different. So in doctrine, just their approach to doctrine is one thing. The very doctrines of God and man are something entirely different. The doctrine of, uh, of Scripture is different. The doctrine of Christ is different. And he finally gets down to the doctrine of salvation, which is different as well. And so he's kind of just showing these things piece by piece. And one thing I'll mention as we get into this chapter, and this, it's, again, it's kind of a long chapter, we'll do it in two, but one thing that Machen's doing as a fundamentalist, right, he's on this fundamentalist side of this controversy that's called the fundamentalist modernist controversy, and it's really just getting in, it's kicking into gear a um, hundred years ago when Machen writes this book. He published it in February of 1923. So, almost 100 years ago. And just prior to that, there is a Baptist minister, if I got him right, I think he's a Baptist minister, preaching in a Presbyterian pulpit in New York City. Um, Fosdick's his last name, James Henry. I'm trying to remember his first and middle. You can figure it out and do a Google search. Anyway, he's a, uh, he's a Baptist minister. He's preaching in a Presbyterian pulpit in New York City, uh, a high-profile Presbyterian pulpit. And late in 1922, he preached a sermon called, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? And it was printed and shot everywhere and became like this kind of like rallying cry to some degree for the modernists, for the liberals saying, oh, these narrow uh, fundamentalists are, are, are trying to take over. They're trying to assert their power. And, um, and anyway, so it's kind of a battle cry that Machen then writes this after that, right, in, res- in response not just to Fosdick, but to... Um, uh, to, to the liberalism that's now more increasing in virulence and, uh, and, and kind of uh, militant attitude within the church. Yeah, Vicki. Harry Emerson Fosdick. So, anyway, you can check him out. And if you want, he, you know, read his little sermon compared to, you know, to Machen and, and see if you think Machen nails him. See if you think Machen actually has him right or if he's caricaturing, you know, Fosdick and the liberals. Uh, he quotes him here and says, well, you know, this is, this is how they deride our doctrine of salvation. Uh, you can see how they do it. So he wants to be very clear here that not only are there major differences, even as we approach God and doctrine and man and the Bible and Jesus, who the Christ is, but the whole doctrine of salvation is something that's sub-Christian. Okay, we're not getting there. There are parts of it that are Christian, sure, but the whole thing together doesn't amount to, doesn't add up to, uh, what Christianity has historically taught and what the Bible teaches regarding the salvation wrought by Messiah. So that's a little bit of an introduction to what we're doing here. Nice to see you, Caleb. The atonement here at the top of the page, just this little blurb. Atonement. Um, and what does the word atonement mean? Or what's, what are some words around it maybe that help us pull together what atonement means? You make atonement. What's that kind of that kind of term? You have to make it. Okay, so some kind of payment issued, um, uh, payment issued particularly to one party that's angry against another party, and issue there's an issue of payment and reconciliation. There you go. Okay, that's helpful. Uh, maybe <laughs> it's helpful if you know what it means. It's not if you don't, right? Uh, so propitiation is the. Oh, 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 
a way of the way of making atonement. Um, that is to say, offering something that propitiates or makes someone who was formerly unhappy happy with you, right? Uh, so was, there's a breach in relationship, usually of a greater to a lesser, but not always. And some payment is rendered, some kind of thing is done, some sacrifice is made often to make the offended party draw near to the offending party in some kind of, um, not necessarily forgiveness, although that's certainly what occurs in the Bible, but uh, in some kind of relationship where the animosity and the anger and the problem isn't there anymore. So it's, it's, it's making friendly uh, a power that isn't friendly towards you for good reasons. So when we talk about atonement, that's it's very clear in the Bible. That's what we're dealing with, dealing with God who is angry at us. We're under the wrath of God, wrath and curse of God. And uh, how do we get out from under that wrath and curse? Well, it's all through atonement. So atonement's the issue, right? And Messiah is our atoning sacrifice. So we'll get into this. So let's read this little blurb here. Atonement is based upon sin before the Holy One. Okay, so our issue here is sin before a Holy God. That's the problem. That's the issue. Liberals tended to minimize sin. Thus, they tended to minimize the atonement. The first half of this chapter has to do with with issues of atonement, sin, and the person of Christ, the Redeemer. The second half of the chapter has more to do with the nature of that atonement itself. And one thing I'll just mention, I'll mention it again next week to remind you, that as mentioned as a fundamentalist, as part of this group that's trying to hold to faithful... uh, proclaiming and teaching of what the Bible has given us and what historic Christianity has given us are called fundamentalists. But oftentimes, fundamentalists are quite narrow in what they're worried about, and their theological concerns aren't necessarily as fulsome as we might hope. That is to say, Machen, as a Reformed Presbyterian, has a great background in, in doctrine and theology of Christianity, and oftentimes the fundamentalists these arm-in-arm with fighting don't have anything sort, anything of that sort. Right? They're, they're much narrower in what they're thinking of. It's not that they're wrong, it's just that they're not wholesome enough. And they're kind of a similar problem on the liberal side. It's not that they're entirely wrong, it's just that they're not wholesome enough. They're, they're disregarding parts of the Bible. Machen's trying to kind of stand in the middle and say, well, you guys are kind of thin over here. You can bulk that up. Fundamentalists, that is, are fundamentally right. They're correct in understanding who Jesus is and the salvation that we have from sin. So he's, he's, on, he's on board with them, even though he'd like to see them build up their doctrine of salvation a little bit. You know, that's a classic, um, you know, classic articulation of justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification, and that's those sorts of things that he wants to kind of, you know, get moving in the fundamental circles a little more. And then on the liberal side, he's not with them. There's not, it's not that everything they're saying is wrong, but that they don't have the heart of the thing. Right? They miss the real atonement in Christ Jesus in his sacrifice on the cross for our sins before a holy God. Liberals don't really have much time for that. They have time for other things. We'll get to that in a moment. So that's, again, now a bolstered introduction. Any, any questions or thoughts as we move into page 99 there? 99 is Wayne Gretzky's number. Just the uh, at one atonement, at one. Sure, that's helpful. Yeah, so at one atonement, at one minute, uh, helps us remember that, yeah, okay, it's bringing together that which was uh, formerly you know, pushed apart. Um, and pushed apart because of the anger and wrath on one side against another. Right? So there's a, a propitiation, there's a making happy that's going on in the middle of that. We'll discuss that more as we go. Okay, so let's look at page 99. Is the word atonement in the scripture itself? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I know the propitiation word is. For certain. It seemed, according to this thing I got, 
seem to be similar, but very, if not the same, <coughs> from the 16th century, talking about propitiation and atonement. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, so even the words around it are worth looking up because we have English words, um, and they're historic Latin words. They're usually used in their Greek words, and there are Hebrew words back there. You know, so trying to kind of measure all those up, and um, it's, it's quite an education. You know, it helps out. Um, maybe some of that as we go. Okay, so I got page 99 here. And I'll just read what I have in my notes and ask you the questions that are there. How was the classic doctrine, and maybe we have to say what is the classic doctrine, though he gets at it here enough pretty quickly. How was the classic doctrine of vicarious atonement derided and dismissed by liberal teachers and preachers? And uh, really on the bottom of page 99 there, we kind of see him lay that out just a little bit. Go ahead, um, okay. Kim. Yeah. I thought you were asking a question. I am. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Okay, sure. So we have this like Christian experience thing that's in this chapter. It was also in, I think, the chapter on Christ, uh, where they don't want to talk about historic Jesus at all. They want to talk about Jesus as he is to us now. Right? My experience with Jesus, that's the important thing. And he says, nah, that is important, but the more important thing is Jesus to begin with, and then your experience with him. Okay, that's, you don't want the tail wagging the dog. And the same kind of thing goes here with, with salvation as well. Um, so this kind of... The historic work of Jesus giving himself as a blood sacrifice on the cross to his father is not something they really want to talk about much. They'd rather talk about Jesus now in my life and what's happening, right, that, that sort of thing, which is super, super common. And that's what he's doing a little later in the chapter with the hymns. He kind of samples three different hymns and shows that Christians can sing all these hymns, but notice what's going on in these hymns, right? Notice what they're celebrating and singing about, and the first one's just us. Right? Our cross to bear. And then it works its way finally to, um, uh, I can't remember the name of or, you know, it's just a few pages. But anyway, the one that celebrates the cross of Jesus Christ, his propitiation on our behalf. Right? Then Christians can sing all of that, but they should recognize what they're doing when they're singing and what they're, what they're lifting forth and, and uh, teaching and admonishing one another with as they sing. Okay, so what is the word, well, put it this way. The answer, I think one answer to the question is they deride it by saying it's a subtle theory. Uh, I think a little later, and I can't remember when, there was something called the Auburn Affirmation. Um, and the Auburn Affirmation was in the Presbyterian Church, the mainline Presbyterian Church, out of which the BPs and the OPs came. And I, I can't remember how many hundreds of ministers signed it, saying just basically that, that the, the, the vicarious atonement theory is one theory among many theories, and, and it's, a, it's kind of a subtle one, uh, meaning that it's like, I don't know, you've got to know a lot or think a lot, and it's kind of squirrely, but Mason's like, it's not that squirrely. It's pretty straightforward. Um, it, it's a mystery, to be sure, like everything else about God, but it's not like it's this subtle theory, like you have to be a sophist to figure it out. What does the word vicarious mean? My mom has one of her mantras. She had mantras. Um, one of them was... Um, I think I'd remember it too, huh? Um, maybe it's just the simple admonishment of learn vicariously. Learn vicariously. Don't learn always by your own mistakes. Learn from other people's mistakes by watching. That was what you meant by it. Um, but, so I had that word ringing in my head as a kid. I didn't really know what it meant, but I kind of got the general idea of, like, you know, watch other people and don't make the same mistakes they're making. That would be a good idea, Tim. 
I got that. Um, but it didn't really help me with the word vicarious, especially in this kind of like theological context where it has a pretty fast definition. So what is what is vicarious, or maybe it's root word, what is a vicar? We talk about, um, well, we don't do much talking about it, but Rome talks about uh, the Pope, being a vicar of Christ. In fact, historically, we're going to back, priesthood entirely is, uh, uh, is, is vicarious, uh, which is to say, a substitute for. Someone standing in place of. Okay? So, in the, in the Roman Catholic tradition, the vicar of Christ, just focusing in on the, the papacy or the Roman bishop, is the one who, on earth, stands in place of the head of the church. He's the head of the church on earth, substituting for the head of the church in heaven here on earth, right? So he's the vicar of Christ, meaning he's the substitute or the one who stands in place of. So now take that as a root word for vicarious and think of the word vicarious, or the phrase vicarious, atonement. So we have atonement where? In another. In a substitute. Right? There's a substitute atonement for us. We're not atoning for ourselves. There's a substitute for us, right? Christ stood in our place. He died in our place. He rose from the dead in our place, and us in him, right? So this idea of the atonement is in another. It's in Jesus. He's the one making atonement. And he has a line in here that it's right at the beginning, too. It's not so much what Christ said. It's not even so much who Christ was. It's what he did. And, of course, what he did was based upon who he was, right? And what he said was based on who he was, but... It's not that the incarnation saved us. It's the incarnation to the cross and to the empty grave and to the session of our Lord in, in heaven that saves us. Right? It's the work of Christ. We often talk about the person and work of Christ. The person is who Jesus is, the God-man, which is, he comes to later in our little section here. He talks about the majesty of the person of, of Christ as being a major factor. The God-man sets Jesus apart from all other men in the work that he did. Um, but here he's focusing on the work vicarious atonement. He, in our place, went to the cross and paid for us. Now he says, pretty simply, a child can understand this. And I think he's absolutely right. God's angry with us because of our sin. Jesus died for us and rose from the dead so we could be saved. That's the love of God in Christ Jesus. Now again, there are mysteries there, to be sure. There are mysteries everywhere. Um, and there should be one right at the very heart of, of what Christ is doing. Uh, the incarnation itself is a mystery. God himself is a great mystery. So we should expect God and his works to be mysterious to us, but not subtle and deceptive. Right? That's, that's I think, what the, the liberals are pointing out. Say, oh, yeah, well, you got this real subtle theory. It's, like, oh, it's pretty simple. Uh, we're bad. God's holy. He provided a substitute for us who died in our place, the death that we deserve, and rose from the dead so we could be saved. So then, if that's the, and I think it's fair enough, that is the classic Christian doctrine, it's certainly the classic Christian doctrine as I look back through church history and read, that's the mainstay. There are other ways in which we talk about the work of Christ and the effects of it. Um, and there are kind of classically three through church history that vie with each other, or at least uh, know, they really compete. Sometimes they kind of do, sometimes they harmonize. I think they can all be harmonized very nicely. Uh, but one is vicarious. Uh, redemption, like we're talking about here, vicarious atonement. One is called, the other, the second maybe, is called Christus Victor, is the name for it, which is Christ the Victor. Uh, Christ who conquered death, who conquered sin, who conquered Satan, and rose victorious as the king of kings over all the powers of earth. Um, do we believe that? 
Yeah, that sounds pretty good. Um, and that the Bible does talk that way, but more the Bible talks about vicarious atonement. It does talk about the, the victory of Christ and the reign of Christ, absolutely. Um, and so that's built in, but we wouldn't want to talk about Christus Victor without also talking about the substitutionary atonement or vicarious atonement of Christ. The third one that's talked about often, the liberals really pick this one up, it's where they camp, is called moral suasion. Moral suasion, which is like persuasion without the per, um, without the kitty sound, right? So just suasion is, is being inclined, right? It's supposed to be being forced, like, you know, if I wanted to, like, I, I think Ed's tie is snazzy and I'm tired of the ties I have. Well, I could kind of coax him into, you know, giving me that tie. I could coax him with words or I could coax him with money, right? That would be like suasion, getting, compelling him and, you know, to, to want to give me the tie. Uh, I could also force him. I could put a gun to his head and say, give me that tie, you're dead, uh, which wouldn't be called suasion. Right? That's a different sort of, uh, a different sort of you know, mechanism as far as bringing people around. The idea here, though, with moral suasion is that we look to Jesus. We see all the goodness. We see all of his, his kindness that he gave himself for us. And he's so selfless and all that's true. And we say, that moves my heart to want to be like him. We want to be like Jesus. We want to follow him because he's so awesome and he's so great and he's so loving. And Of course, all that's true. Right? We don't just you know, dispute that. But to make that the heart of the effect of the gospel, to make that what Jesus has accomplished, is he's set the standard and encourages us then, and we, are, we follow along to be like him, is true, but it's not the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is we're wicked sinners, estranged from God, and we need to be reconciled to God. And as we're reconciled to God, we love Christ. We love our God. We want to follow him. That's all built in. Right? That's part of the, the thing. But if, if, so if we have all three of those together, we have this vicarious atonement on the one hand. We have this moral suasion we just talked about on the other. And we have the Christus Victor. I think that's a good, fulsome picture of the work of Christ. But we want to keep the first thing first, which is what Mason's trying to do here in this chapter, saying it's, it's really the vicarious redemption that's at the bottom of everything. These other things kind of flow out of it, even though I don't think he really says that. But I think that's the truth of the matter. Um, any, any thoughts or questions on, on that? Kind of some new language there, maybe, or at least some, you know, some two-bit theological terms. Well, I had seen it, and I can't find it again, about godliness, and uh, although one reference to it in uh, upgrading the Jews had a form of godliness but lacked knowledge. Yeah, okay. So you were talking about uh, God, the, that the way, versus the gospel, the yeah. approach that the liberals take towards Jesus being good, kind, all the all plus factor things right. and, and not even knowing who he is, a form of godliness. That's exactly right. And, and, and quite, quite similar because I think the liberals are doing the similar thing that the Jews are doing, rejecting the Messiah and building up their own righteousness. Well, they're dead. I mean, they can't really. Right. What can they do? Sure, but uh, and the same thing goes for the, the Jews that are Christ in the New Testament, right? right. Um, but that's what they're trying to do. So that's we should recognize that as a track that men take, right? That, that people do all the time, uh, whether ancient Jews or modern Americans. It's a similar kind of track. So that's good. That's helpful. Um, and uh, and then kind of bring it back to Machen to focus in the thing that they're leaving out. So you can say a lot of things about Jesus and be like, yeah, that sounds great, but you got to say the main stuff. You've got to say the stuff that's important, not just the stuff that people want to hear. And that's, I think, the liberal teaching. And, and, uh, and Anyway, yep. The liberals, do they just disbelieve the scripture or they just thrown it out? Or they don't like 
Well, they're blind, blind leaders leading the blind. But have they just disallowed? Or just throw, I mean, do they, I know, I used to go to an American Baptist church, and the guy preached on, the pastor preached on everything in scripture. Like, you know, one Sunday, I remember it was when Jonathan Livingston Seagull was popular. He preached on that. Well, it's disgusting. Yeah. Well, I I kind of wanted the same thing. With like Unitarians, I'm like, what do they get together and do, you know? Um, yeah. uh, it, it's like, well, historic Christianity takes this book in hand, uh, along with church tradition, the, the way it's been handed down, and we try to be serious with it. Uh, there are a lot of ways to fool people, and um, yeah, and there's, there's, there are a lot of reasons. There are a lot of financial reasons to fool people in the church and keep going, even when you find that you don't believe this book. Maybe you started saying, yeah, I believe this book, and most probably did. Most, I don't think most liberals started as liberals. Right? I think I think they kind of start in more evangelical backgrounds and, and decide they don't believe this stuff. Right? They just simply don't believe this stuff. Mel Hamilton, you know, Mel and Sharon have been here, and he moved, by the way. Oh. His I was born in Berkeley and I left. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't go to divinity school there. Paul's letter to Pastor Timothy and to us by extension about the false teachers and, uh, and avarice being one for sermon. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and he says, uh, but godliness, he's telling Timothy, but godliness with contentment is great gain. But he's re- reminding them to. Uh, those that are deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. There you go. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and uh, another passage I was thinking of, either in Ephesians or Colossians, I think it's Ephesians 2, um, talking about these these Christians who basically become their God as their belly. Right? They've, they've turned into just these, you know, they're, they're, and that's within the church, right? There's a you know, members and possibly teachers within the church. So let's not, like, you know, delude ourselves into thinking that this doesn't happen or this doesn't happen in good circles. Of course it does. Where else is it going to come from? You know, uh, so um, being faithful as a congregation, being faithful in your own families, being faithful as a session uh, to make sure we're bringing forth the whole counsel of God faithfully. And if we are not, to bring that to our attention. Uh, and if you have to bring it to the presbytery's attention, that's, you know, that sort of thing, right? That's, that's, those are the safeguards around this in, in our Presbyterian model, but obviously they don't work all the time, since the Presbyterian Church went down the river big time just after he wrote this, right, in the next ten years. So, um, does that have a hand? Okay, we're cooking with gas here, folks. All right. So, an interesting one, this, this mysticism one, um, pages 102 and 3. How is Christianity tied to history, and how does that tie enable Christianity to avoid mysticism? 
Okay, so first of all, the question is, how is Christianity tied to history? That's a good question to begin with. How is Christianity tied to history? And don't answer, because I'm a Christian and I'm in history. That would be... Yeah. <laughs> Christ did time. Yeah, right. Yeah. There you go. The, the Eternal came crashing into space and time uh, in the Incarnation. It really happened. Yeah. Yeah. What's that? There you go. Yep, he did. And uh, he's, he's one of the great ancient historians. Funny, I, was, I think I told you this when we were going through Acts, but looking back, and there are, you know, scholars saying, here are the great ancient historians. Most of the lists don't even have Luke on it. I'm like, well... I mean, Tops, Tops historian. For, I mean, as far as what ancient historians give us and marking, it gives us a lot more than a lot of ancient historians do. Anywho, um, so yeah, there's the, 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 the historic reality of at a certain time, when the time was right, uh, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, right, to redeem those under the curse of the law. So there's a historic reality. Something happened in time. And Christianity is based upon what happened in time. And if it didn't happen in time, then Christianity is a hoax. Right? It's a lie. It's false if it didn't happen in time. Now, the liberals would say, oh, it doesn't matter what happened in time. It might not even matter if Jesus really existed. See? Uh, what's important is that we have the spirit of Jesus now with us and we learn to be kind and do things like that, right? So, again, you can see the moral suasion, even, even if the, uh, the, the focus of your like, morality isn't even real, doesn't matter. Uh, it might matter, probably doesn't. What matters is Jesus and us now. And Jesus is just whatever we want to make him at that point, as opposed to historical reality. So mysticism, now uh, mysticism is it's kind of a word that goes a bunch of different directions, um, but we might say, at least I think it's Mason's using it here, is a religious orientation that is totally ahistorical. It, 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 space and time and reality that God made doesn't matter. Uh, you have mystical experiences that you kind of interpret yourself, or we have mystical experiences that we interpret ourselves, but they're detached from any, like, space and time reality. They're just spiritual truths and experiences that you have. And there are plenty of religious people that kind of exist in that realm. Whether they come to a Christian church or somewhere else, they're just kind of hoping for experiences, and it doesn't really matter if they tie into history or tie into space and time, but Christianity does. You may have mystical experiences. Christianity is full of kind of strange spiritual uh, experiences for people that are beyond the normal. I'll grant that. But they're all tied to what Christ has done in space and time, the death and resurrection of Jesus in time. And that's what makes Christianity, even though it might have a mystical aspect and application to it is rooted in history and must be or else it's simply not Christianity. It's something else. Right? It may use Christian words and so on, but it's not Christianity. So any thoughts on that? I thought that was an interesting little angle he had here. You know. Okay. I like it. Next little section here. we got about ten minutes to burn. So I think we can make it. So the um, the liberals are the liberals chide Christianity for being narrow and exclusive. How are these accusations true? How are they false? And then the mission part after that. So how is how can you imagine or can you, you know, find in the text or just, just thinking about it how Christianity is narrow and exclusive and how that's how that could be a problem for people. 
I mean, it's always a problem for people, right? It's, it's like one of the great problems of Christianity is Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me is pretty narrow and exclusive. Narrow is the way. Right? The narrow gate leads to the way. So there, there is a narrowness to this thing. It's not every path. It's not everybody everywhere. It's one man, the Christ of God, who brings us to salvation. It's him we trust, and it's him we serve. And there is a narrowness to that. No question about it. There is an exclusiveness to it. Right? And, and the liberal is like, well, what about all the other faith traditions? What about all the, that's maybe terminology from nowadays, faith traditions, not then. Um, you know, don't they bring us wisdom, and, and aren't, aren't they also paths to God? Well, they do give some wisdom, I'll grant that. I think men and women can look at the world with wisdom and teach us stuff, to be sure. That's why I read Greeks, and so on, right? This is because, not because they were Christians, but because they have something to offer. And they do have something to offer. So you don't have to be a Christian to have something to offer. But the Christian message is there is salvation in none other than Jesus Christ. Right? That's, and, that, and so the liberals like, well, hang on. We think all paths lead to the top of the same mountain. Right? And Christianity is like, nope, it doesn't work that way. And Christianity has always been, nope, it doesn't work that way. Christ, you know, the salvation, the redemption, reconciliation to our, our Heavenly Father is through one, through Christ Jesus. And that's, I got here first. Yeah, it seems to Certainly, at some point. Kim? Well, I think that he points out here that that was the Christian exclusivism was the problem that the religious had with God and what it was. Precisely. You know, it wasn't yeah. that Jesus was God and they wanted to worship him. That wasn't the problem. No problem. Have a God and worship all you want. But that he was yeah. the only God and the only way was there. Yeah. And, and that he. So he's not only that he's the only way, and that's, that's this kind of exclusive message, but that he held their devotions and hearts in such a way that they couldn't do other things. They couldn't go participate in other religious ceremonies or sacrifices, where the ordinary person in the Roman society or in this you know Greco-Roman world, we call it this Hellenistic world, he calls it here, whatever, doesn't matter. You go worship here and worship there and this God and that God. And, you know, in fact, the more the merrier often because... Uh, you know, you don't want to make the gods mad by not worshiping them, and if you do, that's the, so. That's the kind of this. That's the mentality I think of the Hellenistic world. Christians come in saying, "Yeah, it's not like that. We can't do that. We can't simply do this little pinch of uh, incense to the emperor, and I guess we're going to have to die for it, right?" That's it, so. It, it kind of comes into that level, and that's a little bit like our own time, right? If you can worship Jesus to your heart's content. Just don't say that he's the only way. Don't say that he's the one who you know by whom all men must be saved. There's got to be other ways, and I think the liberals were 
just working on that same, playing the same tune. So, Ed, yeah? So I, I have two things. One, one um, I know I have a few years to back I had a interesting conversation with Indian <laughs> Yeah, right. right, that they worship him <laughs> like they worship any of their other God or goddesses. Um, on a, on a, a slightly different note, even though we are very exclusive, Christ is the only way, we're very inclusive, every tribe, nation, mm-hmm. language, tongue, right? Yeah. So, so there, there's the kind of glory of the new covenant, the, the inclusiveness of it. It grabs everybody, but it grabs everybody in a certain way. And there's an exclusiveness to that certain way. So, so I can get, I get the liberals would be upset or about our exclusiveness. Okay, I, I, I totally understand that. And in some ways, they're right. But we're just trying to say what the Bible says. We're just trying to repeat what Jesus has taught, and so on. Uh, where they're trying to do something else, and that's kind of the issue. Uh, any other comments? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, precisely. So the moral suasion at this point is, is your, your morals are not necessarily biblical morals or Jesus and who Jesus was, though that might be something closer to 100 years ago. Right now it's yeah maybe something entirely different, uh, the morality that you're being persuaded unto. And it's a perverted version of what they think love is, right? Sure, you bet. Just loved everybody. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Jesus hung out with sinners. Yeah. Right. So yeah, you can see, you can kind of see the purchase right now, and then how, how things might go. Um, so one one in the next section here, the next question anyway. Um, well, I'll, I'll just mention the missionary things that comes up later. How does uh, Christian missions work tie into these accusations? Well, Christian missionaries have to go out and preach a message to people who are perishing, oftentimes in other cultures, and. It comes around here not too long, like a decade later, where you know Pearl Buck and her elk are going out there saying, the point of missions is to go learn from these other people. Well, I'm not opposed to learning from other people. That's okay. But that's not what a missionary is there to do. He's to learn so that he can bring the message of the gospel. But these missionaries aren't taking the gospel. And that, that becomes the point where Machen and some other folks of his said, well, we're going to stop giving money to these missionaries, and we're going to start a missionary board over here called the Independent Board for Presbyterian Foreign Missions, which is still around. They report every year in our Senate. Um, and uh, and that's, that was the trigger. That's what got them defrocked. That's what made all the problems happen in the churches when the money went from here to there, right, over missions. So this whole thing comes right into missions and, and becomes a great presentation problem a decade later for, for the Presbyterian Church. Um, Okay, this, I think we can make it at least the, the 106, the 109. What distinguishes, this is an interesting question, because especially with Socrates, like, it's only, like Socrates is this Greek figure uh, that kind of is like a Christ figure in certain ways. You know, there are, there are connections between Socrates' life and, and death and, um, and Jesus that are interesting. What distinguishes the death of Jesus from other human sacrifices? Right? Is Jesus the only person in all of human history that's given himself for other people? No. Right, there, you know, there are all kinds of stories and people that have, whether it's throwing themselves upon a grenade and they, you know, got, got tossed in the circle or whatever. That's a heroic act, right? That guy gave his life so that his uh, his uh, co-belligerents there would not die, or, or or Socrates, who out of principle, you know, said, "I'll I'll drink the hemlock, right? I'll I'll I'll, I'll die here because I'm sentenced to die." 
Um, and it was a noble act, and I think it was. But what separates those kind of noble acts from Jesus' act of vicarious redemption? Yeah. That's a great way to put it. Um, let me find the way he put it here. At least he used the, uh, the Lord of Glory line, which I thought was, uh, was helpful. There it is. Uh, thus the objection is on page 108 at the bottom. Thus the objection to the vicarious sacrifice of Christ disappears altogether before the tremendous Christian sense of the majesty of Jesus' person. It is perfectly true that the Christ of modern naturalistic reconstruction never could have suffered for the sins of others, but it is very different in the case of the Lord of glory. Right? It's the God-man who came, the sinless God-man who came to suffer. That sets his actions apart from other human actions that might be noble, might be self-sacrificing, and in that sense might be good, but they're not redemptive. They're not something that we can uh, rest in for our salvation uh, they're just good men we can follow or, or emulate or something like that. So that ties in with the moral suasion thing. It's like Jesus is just like the best of them. Right? He's the one, uh, you know, if you look at all sorts of humans and their sacrifices, Jesus is the best of them. Um, the Christian position is Jesus is the only one. He's the only God-man sacrificed for the, the sins of, of the sons of Adam. Okay? That, that, so all of that kind of moves into a different category here. Right? You can see the kind of how it breaks down. It's not, they're not, we're not talking about the same thing. Even if we're using the same words, we're not talking about the same thing, and that's important. Yeah, yeah I mean, I might be able to die to save somebody's life, but only Christ can die to save someone's soul, right? Okay. For someone's eternal life. Good. Well, that's, that's a good way to put it. Um, yeah, there are, there are ways in which we can give ourselves and give the gift of life in the sense of preserving it and things like this. Uh, and those, I think those who go into the military and put their life on the line, that's part of the deal. Law enforcement, that's part of the deal. They're giving themselves and opening themselves uh, to harm for other people. Praise the Lord for that. Not the same thing as the vicarious redemption of Jesus Christ. Yeah. The importance of the hypostatic union of the two natures of Christ are key to the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the hypostatic union is key to all of Christianity. Right? It is the second great mystery. Right? Uh, the triune God who became man. Those are the two great mysteries of Christianity right there. Um, this, this last little section... Um, and we'll pick it up here because I think it's an important one. It, helps, it brings into focus some stuff like the liberals would chide the, the classic Christian doctrine saying, well, what you guys have to say is that God's a big jerk, a big meanie up in heaven who won't even love people until like, his, you know, his, uh, his anger is placated by the sacrifice and blood. Mm-hmm. Now, what kind of God do you have? So, well, that's half true. But the half that's missing is it's that very God out of love who sent his son. <laughs> that's the missing piece that is the piece, right? It's the piece. God in his eternal love loved us so much from all eternity that he purposed to and did send forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Right? It's God's own sacrifice that makes him happy with us. Right? He's not waiting for somebody else out there to make him happy. He's the one who did it. And I think that's, that, we miss that a lot. People will talk about hell and how could God do this or how could God be this way and how could God do this and they totally miss the gospel in it. It's like, yeah, I guess that you can get wrapped up if you think God's angry at you and God's a, a vengeful, um, you know, uh, jealous God. He is all those things. But in the midst of all that, he's also gracious and loving, and his grace and love are in Messiah. 
Right? He sent his son. He sent his Christ uh, to be our, our salvation. So we'll pick it up there next time because that's an important one, just that idea of focusing on particular attributes of God or particular ways in which he is with us without seeing the fullness of it and particularly the fullness of God giving his own son. Right? The salvation is from God. It cost him. Right? He's the one who made the sacrifice in his son. So let's praise his name in a little prayer before we uh, have a little fellowship or worship.